Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Pam Schaffler, Chair of the Board of Trustees here at New York Historical, and I am delighted to welcome you to our Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, this evening's program is presented in conjunction with our exhibition, The First Jewish Americans, Freedom and Culture in the New World, now on view through March 12th. It is both powerful and timely, and if you haven't seen it, I suggest you get there before March 12th. Tonight's program, Jews and the Making of Modern America, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. As always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to the New York Historical Society. I'd also like to recognize, first and foremost, the president and CEO of New York Historical, Louise Mirror. Louise, Louise, who I am so proud to be able to call a partner, is a hardworking intellectual whose vision infuses everything that we do at New York Historical Society. Thank you, Louise. I'd also like to thank and recognize trustees who are here this evening, Glenn Louie, Rick Reese, recently elected as our chair of our executive committee, and Cy Sternberg. Thank you all for your collaboration. And finally, let me thank the members of the Chairman's Council who are here with us tonight and here for so many other evenings and events as well for your great help and your great support. Tonight's program will last about an hour and it's going to include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted by note cards, uh, and I think those have been handed out when you came into the room. If anyone would like to ask a question, doesn't have a note card, we have staff that will be walking around and can provide that for you before the end of the uh, session. There will also be a formal book signing this evening following the program, and copies of Thane Rosenbaum's books will be available for sale in our New York History Store, which is just outside the auditorium uh, near our 77th Street entrance. We are honored this evening to be joined by Abraham Foxman. Mr. Foxman is the National Director Emeritus of the Anti-Defamation League, where he spent a 50-year career fighting anti-Semitism, bigotry, and discrimination before retiring in 2015. I can personally attest to his national and international impact and influence as I had the privilege of working with him as a lay leader for more than two decades of his tenure at the ADL. Mr. Foxman is now head of the new Center for the Study of Antisemitism at the Museum of Jewish Heritage and continues to speak out on the challenge of global antisemitism, religious intolerance, and issues relating to the Holocaust. He is the author of many books, most recently, Viral Hate, containing its spread on the internet. We are also delighted to welcome back Thane Rosenbaum. Mr. Rosenbaum is a novelist, essayist, law professor, and author of numerous books, including How Sweet It Is and Payback, The Case for Revenge. His forthcoming book is The High Cost of Free Speech. His writings and commentary appear frequently in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. He is the host of the talk show at the 92nd Street Y and is a distinguished fellow at NYU School of Law. 
where he directs the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society. Before we begin, I ask you to please turn off those cell phones that I've just heard and anything else that makes a beep or a noise. And now, please join me in welcoming Abraham Foxman and Thane Rosenbaum. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Why are you so happy? <laughs> you have no idea what the, she said about us. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to, uh, to the New York Historical Society and the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Some of you may remember that Abe and I were here uh, last May. I don't know if you, any of you were here, and it looks like we're going to be doing this a lot. We're going to be calling this two Jews talking across the street from the park with their friends. And, <laughs> This is the new, a Were new things series. better in May? <laughs> you know, this, this, yes. And, it's, and we're not talking about the weather. Long. You know, we could have called this night anything. I think they have it now, uh, uh, Jews in the Making of Modern America. It could have been and something we considered, you know, the, the greatest, the hundred greatest New York uh, Jews, uh, American Jews of all time. That would have been an interesting night. Or Jewish cavalcade of stars, right? Or Abe's idea, I can't tell them what you have your idea. Yeah. Abe's idea was to do a sort of a game show, uh, who's a Jew anyway? <laughs> and then we could have like debated Catherine Jones and Julia Edelman or Bruno Mars. I'm convinced Bruno Mars is Jewish, by the way. I once wanted to do an ad which said, don't be an anti-Semite, you too may be Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, today is actually a really great day to have this discussion, Abe, because uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was in the White House. And if any of you watched it, I can honestly say it's the first time in American history when an American president essentially said, my grandchildren cannot eat pork, uh, my grandchildren can, do not eat shellfish, my grandchildren do not eat bacon. Well, he took the line of some of my best friends one notch higher. My grandchildren are Jewish. My children and my grandchildren <laughs> yeah. are Jewish. How can I be a bigot or an anti-Semite? It was the ultimate credential, yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> there were historically court Jews, right, throughout history. Uh, Mordechai being one, of course. Uh, I guess Henry Kissinger was one. Uh, uh, certainly the Rothschild. You said it. Yeah. Look, I gave him a lot of credit here on the Upper West Side to say that. Um, Jared Kushner is clearly the only court Jew who married the king's daughter. <laughs> I'm just saying, that's a trivia question that you can go home with. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about a number of <clears throat> moments in American history in which uh, Jews were involved. There was notoriety among it, and it had a lot to do with sort of the development of the, the Jewish temperament essence of what it meant to be a Jewish American. And I think one good place to start would be the Leo Frank trial. I'm not sure how many people know about the case. I know one thing. It gave birth to Abe Foxman, in a way. The ADL sprang largely from the, the consequences, the aftermath of the, of the Leo Frank case. Do you want it, to briefly... It's, it's really apocrypha, but it's a good story. You know, it, it's, it's nice. The timing in history is a little different, but 
Um, so this is 1915, uh, right? 13. Well, yeah, 15. We were born in 13. Right, 13. You were right, two years. Right. But, but, but it's also important to know that it's, it's only a little more than a decade from the Dreyfus Affair in France, which is very important to understand that this comes in the aftermath of the Dreyfus Affair. I, those of you who don't know the story, it's just two minutes. Um, pencil factory in Georgia, managed by a New York Jew, a um, young, an employee, Christian girl, found, strangled. Raped and strangled. Raped and strangled. And um, he was arrested, uh, charged with the murder, found innocent, lynched. Lynched. Well, he was eventually, the, the wow. sentence was commuted by the governor. The okay. people of Georgia were so angry, this is in Atlanta, that they basically took him out of prison and lynched him. It's the only time in American history where a Jew was lynched. Right. Uh, <clears throat> I want to go how many years? A hundred years later? Yeah. He still does not have to this day a proper pardon. That's another part of what we're about, we'll talk about, but... To this day, you know, and the Anti-Defamation League, which, whether apocryphal or not, certainly fought the case, the New York Times, the only time in its history where it surfaced publicly Jewish, sent the reporter, put the story on the front page. But ironically, till this day, there is no proper pardon for him. All right, so now, now what does this mean so in, yeah, the, yeah, in the right, context the of our... Of what we're well, about. Yes, the context in some ways is to think about, well, what did it do to Jewish Americans to know that a Brooklyn Jew travels down to Atlanta to become the manager of a pencil factory and ends up lynched? Okay. It was a trauma. It was the most dramatic trauma <clears throat> imaginable. For us, um, this was the golden beginning. That means the why? <laughs> because this is an Upper West Side right, audience and they, you don't speak Spanish. <laughs> um, so for us, Why? This is the gold in the Medina. It's not perfect. That means gold isn't in the streets, but this is a place where Harget nicht jeden. You don't kill Jews. And so, yeah, there is discrimination and there are problems, but unlike where we ran away from, came from, in this place you don't kill Jews. And wow, you get up in the morning and they kill Jews because they're Jews. And, it, and in the context, in the aftermath of a famous trial, Right. This was a major trial. This was covered by the New York Times around the country. People read about this right. case. And I do think the Dreyfus affair played into it because that swept throughout Europe a decade earlier. Right, and it couldn't happen here. And it couldn't happen no. here. We couldn't have a Dreyfus affair here. And, and this was the trauma, if you will, for American Jewry. So the ADL, even if, you know, the timing was, it certainly was given life, was given reason. And what you had is the birth of a phenomenon, a strengthening of the phenomenon, Jewish defense agencies, Jewish organizations whose purpose it is to defend the Jews. Because if you can get killed in this country, you need defense. And then that's the, the ADL really strengthened. How do you do it? You do it by education, litigation, legislation, all the elements of America's democracy, which Jews learned to use, use first for themselves. And again, as you know, and we'll get to if we have time, uh, then began to, to use it for others. If it works for us, it has to work for others. And if we're only for ourselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would imagine at this time, for a number of decades after which, Jews really thought, American Jews thought, now it's time to really assimilate. 
to integrate, to immerse ourselves in the American mainstream, anglicize our names, I think came out more often in the aftermath of the Leo Frank case. Uh, uh, I don't know about nose jobs, but I know that anglicizing names definitely was a post-Leo Frank trial case. Uh, the idea is that let's be as American as possible. And then we have another trial that shows up 40 years later, the Rosenbergs. Uh, the Rosenbergs, as we all know, uh, at least for those people, and of course this is theoretically a liberal audience, it's the Upper West Side, for people in this audience, there are many people who think, certainly the, the Mirapol sons, that the execution of Ethel Rosenberg was a, was a, was a legal lynching. That looked like a lynching to them. Now, what, what, what was different, what's different there? Now you have Jews actually being, uh, uh, being prosecuted for a conspiracy to commit espionage. Remember, this was not a case in treason. People don't remember. It's not treason. It wasn't even espionage. It was conspiracy to commit espionage. So the, the, the electrocution of the Rosenbergs, based on those charges, seemed incredibly extreme. It was not treason, and it was not espionage. It was merely conspiracy. And yet, Jews, how did they respond to that? Um, we're still not comfortable talking about it. When you think about it, um, not very much has been written. Uh, there's now their kids are trying to get some justice back. There, there's a very it, there's a discomfort about it. Uh, uh, the more I've talked to people, this was a time Jews went into their basements, closed the lights, locked the doors for fear of of outbursts of pogroms and anti-Semitism. So this was, uh, I think, much more traumatic to Jews than Leo Frank because. The media, okay, not everybody read the New York Times. Um, it, it, it didn't make it. This was... Everybody knew the Rosenbergs. Everybody knew about it. Everybody knew they were Jews. The stereotypes, Jews not being loyal, Jews being traitor, all of that And Jews played, being socialists. Yeah, played. Jewish left-wing politics in those days was and, under assault, right? The idea of... And it reinforced um, uh, the, the, the insecurity which uh, I don't think we've gotten over yet. In, in, so you still think ways. there's a legacy of the execution of the Rosenberg? Uh, yeah, I, I, very few people talk about it or want to talk about it or want to deal with it because, you know, that's, if you will, the, the epitome of, of dual loyalty or not dual loyalty. Or not betrayal. Not dual loyalty, betrayal. It's the Benedict betrayal. Arnold's of, yeah. of the Jewish world. Yeah, right. yeah. and this is, this is part, if you will, of the protocols of the learned elders, which means Jews are not loyal to the country that adopts them, that gives them haven, et cetera. And there it was, stark. The Rosenbergs went to college for free, City yep. College, yep. <laughs> you know, and look City what they college. did. <laughs> All right, so then another uh, major current in American history where Jews were involved, but in a, sort, in a very important way, but not in quite as, uh, uh, as damaging a way, and in a way that suggested a new level of Jewish assertiveness, was the civil rights era. Um, I was looking this up just the other day. You know, the NAACP early on, uh, one of the leading, one of the founders was a Jew, Jewish man, Henry Moskowitz. Kirby Kaplan. And right, Kaplan. And Moskowitz actually was one of the directors down the block, just to show you we're in the right building, uh, of the uh, Ethical Society, Ethical Culture. Uh, he was one of the directors, and he was also one of the founders, Henry Moskowitz, one of the first uh, direct uh, chairman of the NAACP before there was a black chairman was a professor and at Kibbe Columbia. Kaplan was the funder. The major was the funder. funder. Jacob Schiff was involved. Rabbi Weiss is involved. But there was a chairman who was a Jewish uh, 
professor at Columbia. This is before even an African-American was involved. So Jews played this huge role in the civil rights struggle, more connections between the New York Historical, uh, Historical Society. Um, uh, during the civil rights era, we know the three civil rights uh, workers that were killed in the Shoba County in Mississippi, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. Two of them were Jews. Uh, Goodman and Schwerner were Jews. Uh, Mrs. Goodman, Goodman is 10 blocks away. They were on West End Avenue. Uh, Andrew Goodman was raised in this area. He no doubt went to play in the park. He was in the, in the 90s in West End Avenue. And I read recently that his mother just recently died. She moved away uh, from West End Avenue. But they, they, they were you know, Jewish black martyrs of the civil rights era. Um, and before so this, is, so this is actually coming of age of the American Jewish community, uh, being ready to stand up as Jews. Um, Rabbi Heschel, but on behalf Rabbi, of someone else. That's right. Not only, well, that's but the other Jews, part right. of, of, if I'm not for myself, where am I? I think we've reached that, the right. next stage. Right, we'll talk about that in yeah. a second. But, 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 but this is why also, so you're saying you think that there is something significant that Jews stepped out as Jews to say, we are linking arms with African Americans. By the way, for those of you who saw the film Selma, this was one of the two pieces of controversial uh, 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 talk about the film. One was that Lyndon Johnson was portrayed as someone who was not helpful in the civil rights struggle with Martin Luther King. But Jewish Americans from that era objected to the fact that where's Rabbi Heschel? When you saw the marching in Selma, how come you saw no Jews linked arms? Um, as if to say, this is we part. Have no role, right? We have a role, and the the erosion of the relationship between Jews and blacks have always been problematic because Jews point to this time. Well, there was also something we need to understand, and in the African American community, it was for for a long time projected. Look what others did for them. Yeah. Uh, where in fact, uh, you know, it's if you will, when we get to the Soviet Jewry movement, it wasn't until the first Soviet Jew was ready to risk his life for freedom that the Soviet Jewry movement had a client. In the same way, the civil rights movement didn't start because whites and Jews, et cetera. It was when the first African American was ready to, you know, be beaten up or sit in, you know, or be, be sit at the counter or, or in the John Lewis. That's when it happened. And then the civil rights community came. So I think part of it, what you're seeing is now that the communities come of age, they want, they want their children to have a sense of pride that they did it, yes, with the support of others. You saw the Kivy Kaplan story, which is nice for us, after a while, really, you know, doesn't play that well and in African American. And in fact, African Americans have often said, yeah. we don't like the way you keep reminding us right. that you helped us. That's not how we like this role to be. And we, yeah, well, that's, that's a syndrome. No, nobody likes the hand that feeds it, okay? That's a... No, it's, it's very complicated and ongoing okay. in my world, uh, you know, uh, as a law professor, uh, Jack Greenberg, who also is from the neighborhood, no, he was on Park Avenue, for many years was the head, the Jewish head of the National NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He replaced Thurgood Marshall. So here you had a guy who for like 35, 40 years was a Jew who was, who was the director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And, uh, and African Americans, of course, were on the staff, including Lonnie Guineer, remember? But there was a conflict. There was always been a conflict. Why Lonnie is it... was both Jewish. But by the way, Lonnie was both. She's like Bruno Mars. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm not giving up on that. Let me tell you, Bruno Mars is Jewish. Uh, <laughs> you want him, you can have him. <laughs> um, 
so, so that actually speaks to some of those tensions. Now then we have, we go a little further out, and now all of a sudden Jews emerge in a much more assertive way. And I know you have a lot of interesting things to think, talk about when we talk to movement to free Soviet Jewry. Because now Jews feel so secure in America that they're willing to lobby on behalf of their own that live in the Soviet Union, not just... I, I would step back. I think there, there's, a, there's another event or series of events that I think precede that, and that's the 67 war. Mm -hmm. And that too uh, certainly played on the psyche and the strength and the activism the Jews can and step the self-image of Jews. Uh, a, the you know, first the threat and the anxieties of May 67, which sort of united us. Uh, and the 67 war removed the, the difference between Zionists and non-Zionists. You know, with, there were Zionists and anti-Zionists, et cetera. In, in post-67, all American Jews, in a simplistic way, were Zionists. Or they were pro-Israel. They didn't use the word Zionist. Yeah, that was also a coming of age, if you will, for a community more comfortable. Look, we got to remember, it was this, we grew up in also in a time of American Council of Judaism yeah. and the reform movement and the New York Times. The New York Times re you know, rejected the birth of Israel. Um, part, serious parts of the reform movement rejected it. Then you had this institution, American Council. So part of the growing up of the maturity of the American Jewish community to be able to stand up as Jews, and, and, and then also something we can't forget, Soviet Jews were going to go where? They were going to go to Israel. Mm -hmm. And so American Jews had to be comfortable, and some were not, but most became comfortable. And now, so now, go ahead. Now so, we're. Right, I'm but sorry, also, but, so, you know, but it's, it's fair to say that you could, with a baseball image, you know, that Jews politically took batting practice in the civil rights struggle, and then all of a sudden emerged post 66 uh, Six Day War. Uh, and all of a sudden were forcefully lobbying, and they were doing things that we saw on their own, on behalf of their own, right? We saw what happened in the South with what you just said before, the protest movement, uh, lunch counters, sit-ins, buses. Uh, all of a sudden, Jews would go to the Bolshoi Ballet and disrupt the Bolshoi Ballet. Uh, they, would th they would throw things onto the stage. Um, uh, am I still connected? I think so. All right, good. Uh, so um, this was, uh, all of a sudden, you saw a different level of Jewish activism on behalf of Jews. Well, again, the precursor, the precondition was Soviet Jews had to act on their own behalf. Right. Until that moment came for, for us, for Israel, for American Jews to take on a cause when they were not ready yeah. to put their lives on the line. And that was, if you remember, the hijacking. The hijacking was that moment where Soviet Jews risked their freedom, their life, et cetera, to tell the world we're ready to stand up. And that's when but, you had Delhi Wiesel's, and you had the Brussels conference, et cetera, right. et cetera. And then American Jews united in a way, you know, we haven't seen. But, but the, the efforts that were made by a number of administrations on behalf, remember, these are American presidents intervening on human rights grounds, but essentially for Jews, being lobbied by American Jews. This is very powerful stuff. This, there's no, there's, Harry Truman didn't go this far in support of Israel, as we saw eventually at the end, certainly with Ronald Reagan and with George Shultz. And I think that there's something, I know that you have some interesting thoughts about well, that there's a, 
there's actually a, a blowback that there's comes. A, there's a catch-22 about all right. of this. Um, and that's, again, this this discomfort, this, you know, how powerful are we? Should we be powerful? I've always said, uh, Dane, that we are not as powerful as our enemies portray us to be, nor are we as powerful as we sometimes believe that we are. <laughs> and so, you know, the stereotypes as to why Jews are feared or respected or hated, whatever it is, oh, we're the bankers, we're the, um, you know, we're into business, all these stereotypes that play. And I, my feeling, and we talked about it earlier, is there was another stereotype that was reinforced by this great miracle of Soviet Jewry. Um, I can tell you when I was in the ADL, et cetera, every September with the General Assembly of the United Nations where 170 heads of state come here for two or three days of frantic whatever bilaterals, the Jewish dance card is 40, 50, 60, 80 meetings. And you have to say to yourself, Rebbeinu Shalaylam. Okay. Um, More Spanish. Okay. Um, why? Why? Why are they, you know, why is the foreign minister, the prime minister, we couldn't find enough time. And when they came around Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it was me sugar, you know, because they wanted to meet. <laughs> and to me, it's the success of the Soviet Jewry movement, which in a very funny way reinforces the concept of this protocols of the learned elders. Power. The Jewish power. Because if you're the head of... Uh, Afghanistan, right? take whatever you want. You take a look. And <laughs> you, you know, see... when Abe is here, it's a Yiddish class, okay. Okay. you know? It's a way to practice. It's okay. It's all right. Shot yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah, hurt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're on the west side, not on the east side. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we're on the park. When, when, when they look... I mean, we know. <laughs> Come on. That's a whole other situation. When they took a look at what was happening, here was the United two superpowers, the United States of America, the Soviet Union, Cold War, Hot War, fighting on all kinds of issues. Who determined the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States? Jews. Jews determined whether grain was sold. Jews determined whether Sal Yurok did invite the cure of ballet. And who? Jackson and Vanek, those great Jews. They weren't. Okay, but <laughs> from constituents that weren't Jewish. And th when they took a look at what just, happened... Just to remember, the Jackson-Vanik Amendment was the amendment in Congress and in the Senate that basically linked right. American involvement American in aid... everything. ...with the Soviet aid, Union was sale. conditioned on how many numbers of right. Soviet Jews would be released each right. year. Right. So we, th that was the leverage, Jackson-Vanik Amendment. And they appreciated the miracle of the Soviet Jewry movement more than we did. And in that, they saw the strength, the power of the American Jewish community, and therefore world Jewry, et cetera. And so in a way, it's a double-edged sword. It was a great show of strength, right. but in but showing we, strength... We reinforced a, a stereotype. major stereotype of conspiracy of Jews. Interesting. All right, so those are four uh, distinct periods in American history where Jews played a role and it both affected the Jewish sense of themselves as Jewish Americans. Maybe we could just spend a, a few minutes talking about individual Jewish Americans. Uh, that cavalcade of stars idea. Uh, you know, Chaim Solomon helped finance the American Revolution. 
Uh, you remember Saturday Night Live's game, Jew or No Jew? Yeah, that was the game I gave to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I retitled it. it was, I gave it Jew to or No Jew, Jew right? <laughs> um, Irving Berlin, God Bless America. Um, there's a really great book by a friend of mine, Neil Gabler, A Kingdom of Their Own, which is basically a book. It's actually the subtitle is How Jews Invented Hollywood. Uh, and it's really a book about all these Jewish immigrants that worked uh, first in Coney Island with uh, whatever those games, the things you could look yeah. through. Uh, Chance game, right? Yeah, and then they basically opened up stu studios in, in Astorius, Queens, and then they ended up moving on. They were all, all Jews who ran these studios, and it was, a, it was a bunch of guys that were originally in the garment industry, and there was this idea then, here you have your film industry. Uh, Ralph Lauren, his last name is really Lipschitz, but he, he, he gave America a sense of what American dress looks like, the preppy look, the Western rugged look. Uh, Levi Strauss, to me, is very important because everybody wears jeans. And you could, you could almost argue, you know, who'd had the most profound influence on the making of modern America? You could say, well, Levi's. Uh, is there, is, are there people that you think so is, that... Well, okay, there are. So, but the question begs itself, is, is it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? It's not a matter if it's good or bad. Well, Are but there... Who cares? That means do we care more and a sense of pride? Uh, or does the non-Jewish world see this as a, as a positive or a negative? Um, was it um, Vice President Biden about a year or so ago? Um, I remember at the ADL at our 100th anniversary, he said, ADL, you're the conscience of America. He didn't mean just ADL. He meant the Jews are the conscience of America. He also said the progress that America made on civil rights and, and gay rights, et cetera, is thanks to the Jewish community. So I ask, you know, we sit here, and I, I guess it's a sense of pride. Uh, you know, Irving Berlin, look at his. But on the other side, do they see them as Jews? Do they appreciate the fact that they're Jews? Is, is it a positive or a negative? Have we grown up to say, you know, there's a museum in Philadelphia. I know we're in a museum, so you have to be very careful. Not as good as this It's one. not a success. <laughs> it's not a success. I don't know why. Um, it's not, but you know what? These, it, it's the story of America's Jewish contributions to America, and it's in Constitution Square, and you know what? It's not selling. Now, we were so proud. Here, you know, here's the... Here's the gallery. The full sweep. The full sweep. And they had contests and they had the polling. And here it is. These are the people that made America. And eh. So that's why I ask, is it good for the Jews or you bad know, for the Jews? It's so interesting because, you know, Abe and I have known each other for a long time. And we've done many, many events over the years. And once we did uh, an event in which we talked about uh, Jews, depictions of Jews in popular culture. Remember, we showed clips from Seinfeld. And, you know, he's an incredibly affable, charming guy. But, you know, he doesn't have a great sense of humor when it comes to jokes about ethnic groups. Forget Jews, anybody. He doesn't like it. And it's always because it's interesting how much this is built into your DNA that even here when we say Irving Berlin, Ralph Lauren, you're saying, yeah, but how is it being interpreted? Is it being misapplied? Is it being used against Jews? Is it fomenting bigotry and defamation and prejudice you're in, it's interesting how right, much so of today's is it a conversation yeah. of my insecurity or our insecurity. I don't know. I don't I'm know. asking you. I don't. We're know. on the Upper West Side. There are a lot of shrinks in the room. 
Well, meet them at 7.30. Okay. <laughs> Believe um. me, I see them taking notes. <laughs> I just gave you one. Um, okay. he, does, he just said the same thing about, right? It's a similar theme to right. what you it's said. Just, uh, Here you assert your power on behalf of Soviet Jews. You get Ronald Reagan to do what you want, and okay. people resent it. But, okay, uh, so I think, to quote the President of the United States, you got to be smart. Okay? You fix everything by being smart. You make trade smart, whatever. So uh, I think that's the answer. The answer is we need to be smart. Uh, there are certain things that, you know, are funny, and there are certain things that are not. We have to, it, it, look, I, I just, before here, somebody called, uh, a journalist called and said, um, David Friedman is going to apologize tomorrow in his hearings. Uh, J Street said they won't accept it, and they still don't want him to be. You criticize him. I said, I accept an apology. I said, if you don't accept an apology, how do you expect anybody to say I was wrong or I'm sorry? Forget it. So in, in this whole area of, of is it anti-Semitic, is it not, I got a lot of criticism because I accepted people's saying I'm sorry. So we have to be smart. But what about just the idea of the expression of, okay, here are these Jews that made huge contributions to, quote, the making of modern America, which is the title of this event. And yet at the same time, there is a kind of resistance well, to celebrate their, their Jewishness, their ethnicity, okay, so because it might backfire. Let me, let, me take it, let me take it inside out, okay? Um, when Marlon Brando, before, you know, a long time ago, was interviewed and was asked about good things and bad things. This is Larry King, right? Yeah, it was Larry King. It was Larry and King. And he said, uh, well, you know, uh, there are a lot of things I wanted to do and I couldn't do. And he said, what? He says, well, I wanted to make movies about X, Y, and Z, and I couldn't do it. And he said, why? And he said, well, you see, the Jews control Hollywood, and therefore they would only support, finance, enhance those things that are good for the Jews. And I was then called and asked, and I said, anti-Semite. And the Jews called me and said, hey, come on, what's wrong with He's you? He's the godfather. No, not besides the godfather. <laughs> but what are you talking about? He's right. Look at all the Jews in Hollywood. They're producers, director, casting, financing, etc. He's right. I said, oh, no, he's not. Oh, no, he's not. These people, the directors, the producers, etc., are out there as directors who happen to be Jews. What he's saying is they are Jews who happen to be directors, producers, etc. And, and that's where the anti-Semitism, because what he's talking about is they're there first and foremost as Jews. They sit at Katz's Deli on Sunday morning and they decide what's good for the Jews and what's bad for the Jews. That's why it's anti-Semitic. And so I asked, I turned it around and say to you, you know, Irving Berlin, did he do this as a Jew or he did it because he was, a, he, he was this great genius of music? Uh, and you can go down well, the, the line, they didn't, they didn't act as Jews. Well, it's clear that Ralph Lauren did not make Hasidic clothing. Right. Uh, <laughs> to my knowledge, I didn't see his line this year, but maybe I didn't go to New York Fashion Week. Um, Irving but Berlin, there is Haredi fashions. Today. Yeah, Irving Berlin did not write a Hanukkah song. Right. Right. He right. wrote White Christmas, right. but he didn't write a Hanukkah song. Right. Uh, so yes, it's true. And by the way, and if you if you read this Neil, my friend Neil Gabler's book, you will find out 
that Hollywood for decades refused to, these studio heads refused to make Jewish films. Jews were rarely, they made cowboy westerns. We had to wait for Spielberg to become this yeah. great All those, Spielberg to do Schindler's List for yeah, years. It, literally decades of Jewish film head, studio heads that made cowboy westerns, and they didn't even hire Jews, and if they had hired Jews, they changed their names. So yes, they, there, was, there was no outward expression of, Jew, of the Jewish well, experience. Well, both Dustin Hoffman and Spielberg in interviews in recent years said, that when they were mistaken for Germans, they would say, I'm German, rather than Jewish. So we've come a long way, but they hid it in their great success. They hid their Jewishness. Right. So uh, the, uh, can I give you a really great Marlon Brando anecdote? It's a really good one. Uh, I don't even think you even... Choice? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, it's a good one. Uh, uh, there was... Uh, the, what, what was Heck's first uh, name? Uh, the the play, Broadway play, screenwriter play... Ben Heck. So he had a play after World War II called The Flag is Born. Uh, and that was a play. It was the first Broadway show, first film that looked, it was before the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, and it was the first play or film that was about start creating a homeland for the Jewish people. This is pre-Exodus, pre-Leon or Uris's Exodus. And it starred Mar a young Marlon Brando. And there's a really great scene in this play on Broadway where he points to the audience and he says to them, what did you do? He didn't use the Holocaust because that word didn't even exist. What did you do during that time? And many people credited, it's ironic that no one actually mentioned this about Brando. Many people credited Brando for being pro-Zionist uh, at that time, for being one of the Broadway celebrities and film stars that was involved also in every way of the creation of the State of Israel. And then of course, and it shows you sometimes prejudice is complex. Right, it it shows up in a different way, and it's and you nobody knows this more than you, right? You hear, I mean, I don't want to defend Steve Bannon here. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that sometimes people say something, and it may not, may or may not express who they really you are. You want to know my story? I became Does a it member. Does it involve Brando? No, <laughs> um, I became a member of the U.S. Holocaust Council thanks to the intervention of Pat Buchanan. I have that little card, dear Abe, <laughs> the next opening on the Holocaust Council is yours. Now, to me, he's an anti-Semite. He was. And yet, it was his intervention to put me on the Holocaust Council. So, you know, there's no, <laughs> a lot of grays. You want to talk about Shabbos? Yeah, we can do that. We'll come to, the, you know, let's, that's, a, that's an interesting way of dovetailing. Just talk, we talk about this idea that we, it was actually in a Saturday Night Live sketch a week or well, two it, ago. It, it culminated. And in it's an all, it's about Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka Trump. Yeah, I, you know, okay, I, some people, I think I'm as, I am as secure a Jew, I, you know, I, I don't consider myself an insecure Jew. And by the I, way, the setup for this, this is another example of Abe's concern. Okay, right? but my antenna quiver. Right. And maybe they quiver earlier than some of yours, but my antenna quiver, a different way. Maybe the Shoah, maybe the Holocaust has something to it. But at the same time, I, I you know, I, I think I'm, I'm a proud Jew and I'm not an insecure Jew. But when something happens that that makes my antenna go, so I, we shared and 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 they said, why don't we talk about it? There's a new culprit, a new Jewish culprit on the American political scene, and it's called Shemer Shabbos, Shemer Shabbos observance of the Sabbath. And all of a sudden, two weeks ago, there was a New York Times column 
which basically said if those um, Jews in the White House didn't uh, observe Sabbath in the orthodox manner, maybe the um, refugee ban wouldn't have happened. And then, and then, because, and a good guy, because, a good guy. Because Jews weren't around to Jews stop it? Jews weren't around. Well, it, it, it goes Is up that the, the ladder. Right. So this culprit then appeared in a Vanity Fair story, in a New York Magazine story, on CNN, and finally, crescendo, it made it on Saturday Night Live with a little snippet which said, when the Jews are away, the guy will play. Okay, funny. I don't think it's that funny. <laughs> I told you. I don't think it's <laughs> he that funny. He doesn't like it. All of a sudden, and there's a lot of anxiety in America about this presidency. There's a lot of issues. But all of a sudden, here's the culprit. It's the Shaima Shabbos Jew. It's the Orthodox Jew. But from right and left. And right and left. Right. So to the left, they don't like this because if those Orthodox Jews wouldn't be Orthodox and she and he would speak up to the president, maybe this wouldn't have happened and this wouldn't have happened. So that's a left-wing argument. And to the right. Did you look at the power of the Jews? They control in the White House. So if they're, if they, you got to be careful when you do things, okay? So all of a sudden, you wake up in the morning, a lot of us feel, oh, isn't it wonderful? Uh, he's got a Jewish daughter. He's got Jewish grandchildren. They're Shemar Shabbos. He can't call her on Friday night. Nebuch, it's terrible. You know, the President of the United States can't call his daughter on Friday night. And so maybe, maybe it is my Mishigas. Um, I'm not that happy. I'm not, I do worry. Because all of a sudden, we're being set up. We're being set up that all of a sudden, Shabbos is becoming a culprit. Now, not the people who are there, not the decisions. And all of a sudden, it's not just pop culture. It ends up in pop culture. But read it. You know, don't read the New York Times. I don't want to promote it, but, you know. Read that no, column. There was there was our series of stories about series this. Series of stories about this. In a very serious manner. It wasn't a joke like it was on Saturday Night Live. So another thing for us to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like the jokes. Uh, uh, Shabbos as uh, as the culprit. As a culprit. But right. Orthodox Shabbos, not just Shabbos. You know, the real Shabbos. It reminds me though, what what year did Joe Lieberman run for vice president? 2000, right? 2000. He was with Gore. Right? 2000, yeah. right? Two, no, he was 2000. 2000, he was with Gore. He was not with Kerry. So I remember in, the, in that era that he too was an observant Shomer Shabbos Jew. And there was talk at that time about, well, what will happen if something urgent happens and you can't call him up? You can't get him out of bed. And so people talked about this question. I remember I was quoted in a New York Times story about this. And there was a number of people that responded uh, from the religious right and said, which again is a response to Abe. It doesn't make Abe feel better. But it was, no, people who Christ devout Christians respect men and women of faith. And they actually respect that this is a man that says, look, this is according to my faith. I shut down for 24 hours. But I'll be back. And by the way, the law under Jewish law requires that if and there's an emergency, you can get me. But most Saturdays, yeah. you'll you're, see you're me. You're absolutely right. Evangelical Christians were more comfortable then and are comfortable now uh, with, with, with Ivanka. Right, with with Ivanka. Ivanka. 
However, Jews were not. Right. And this goes back to our To a levels of insecurity. To, to a level of insecurity. And you think this goes back to Leo Frank. To a certain extent, you know, Jews, Jews wanted a Jewish candidate, but did he have to be Shomer Shabbos? Did he have to be someone that everybody, he's kosher. I, so every Jew's expected to know what Shomer Shabbos is, what kosher is. Couldn't have been another Jew. Yeah, but Jews so don't get what again. they want. I'll tell you why. Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah. They don't get what they want, right? Because Bernie Sanders is perfect. He sounds like he's from Brooklyn. He is. Yeah. He eats bagels. Yeah. Uh, but he takes positions. He's a Polish American. Right. He's but not he, even a Polish American. Right, but he Jew. takes positions that many Jews, at not least a, with respect to Israel, would oppose. Right? Uh, okay, and so, so, so there's I, an example of a Jewish. He could have uh, been the first Jewish uh, president that Jews would have disowned. The Jews would have disowned. <laughs> Nish, not, right. Okay. Right. Because when he was asked about where did he, you know, about his parents, yeah. he said they were Polish Americans. You know, they were American Poles. Weren't American Polish Jews. They came here not as Polish, <laughs> they came here as Jews who ran away from that. So, so, so you're saying Bernie Sanders is the Irving Berlin of American politics? Well, I right? go that he's, far. I, I'm just saying he's Jewish, but like he's not going to tell you he's Jewish. He's not going to write a song about it. He's not going to tell a Jewish joke, and you're not going to hear any Yiddish out of Bernie Sanders. Although uh, he knows. But he is, but unlike, I mean, he, what I am saying is he and Lieberman could not have been more opposed to so many positions, I think, Correct. even though at some point they were in the same party and they served in the same bot. Did they serve at some point in the Senate together? They might have Probably. served together at some point. Yeah, because Bernie was there forever. And I bet you they did not go to a Seder together. It's just a, it's just a <laughs> hunch. Um, uh, let's talk a minute about dual loyalty, because I'm interested in that. A minute? Yeah, just a few <laughs> okay. minutes about dual. See, we've we got some time. We have some <laughs> few questions from the audience. Uh, no one says to Irish people, you know, we think uh, your loyalty is to Ireland or to Italians. Uh, you're, you're, a lawyer, you're obviously more loyal to, the Ital to Italy. Uh, and we don't certainly say about anyone in living in Brighton Beach, oh, I'm sure they're more loyal to Russia than they are to us. They're rooting for Putin. Uh, when we refer to the old country in this country, people, Jews refer to Poland and Russia. Israel is different, right? Because it's really the new country. And yet it has the question of dual loyalty. We've seen this in American politics. The Mershire and Walt book took the position that, you know, Israel... Uh, the endless lobbying on behalf of Israel was, a, was it with, with against the interest of American foreign policy. In fact, you wrote a book about that to attack, to, to challenge that argument. So this argument of dual loyalty continues to show up. You pointed out earlier, you saw it, you saw it at its highest level during the Rosenberg trial. Because it's not a function of Israel. Israel is just another platform, another excuse. It goes to the issue of the Jews, the stereotype, the Jews are not loyal. Period. Period. And no one Wherever says they are, to whatever it is, their only loyalties to themselves, they only care about themselves, they don't care about anybody else, and whether they lust for power because they want money, or they lust for money because of power, but it's all about them. Israel is just a convenient platform today for that stereotype. It gives them sort of a, a, a legitimacy, if you will, in, in the... Because the Protocols sense. of the Elders of Zion was written before there was Israel, yes, right. and they still said there right. was no loyalty. There's no loyalty. Jews, wherever they are, are not loyal to wherever they are, except for themselves, and that continues to play. And it, you know, and I, I don't, I don't commend you to read on social media. They, they hate social media, uh, but um, Kushner, and, and it's there. 
Yeah. It's well, we'll end with that question. Yeah. Okay. But let me just ask one quick question before we get to that question, and we'll get to your questions. Uh, we live in an era now of identity politics and multiculturalism. Um, you know, I've spent way too many decades on university campuses, so I see this firsthand. Uh, it does seem that at least on, in intellectual circles and in university campuses, Jews aren't even considered an ethnic group anymore. They have now so fully successfully melted into the American melting pot that they're just white colonialists, uh, privileged white people. They're not really part of the multicultural pluralistic experience. Your whole career was based on pointing out bigotry, not just to Jews, but to all ethnic groups. But it does seem to some degree that, you know, the, the, the nature of the topic of today's discussion, Jews and American, it's almost like saying white people in Ameri making an American, uh, American uh, uh, democracy, that it's not really its own group worthy of its own distinction. To uh, what's your question? Well, I mean, <laughs> am I right? I mean, is it true that what we're really seeing now, that 20, 50 years from now, Aside from, you know, baseline prejudices against Jews, we're not going to think of Jews anymore as their own ethnic group? Look, I, I don't think there's anything new. And it was, I don't know if you watched the press conference this morning. A lot of it is being attributed to the last political campaign, some even to Trump. The truth is, it's always been there. Uh, with all what's due respect to anti-Semitism. Right, anti but I'm talking about anti-Semitism. With all due respect to A. Foxman and the ADL and David Harris and the American Jewish Committee and all the efforts and all the legislation and all the education, we didn't eliminate it. We made it, we made it un-American, uh, immoral, unchristian, unacceptable. Uh, we legislated, but there is no legislature. We have no hate, no group libel legislation. We don't have laws like they have in Europe which makes it a crime to be an anti-Semite, a Holocaust denial, a racist. In this country, we made progress, but we knew that it was there. So that means we didn't eliminate it, but we made sure it's in the sewers, and we put a cover on it. And the success, if you will, of, of, our, of the ADLs, et cetera, is that we got this country um, to, to almost come up with a civil contract. And even though political correctness, which Trump makes a sin and a crime, it's not a sin and a crime. Political correctness developed a, a contract of civility. You want to be a bigot in here, in here, at home, but you can't be a bigot out there because you're going to pay a price, not by law, not by prison, not by punishment. You're going to pay a, you're going to pay a price uh, because if it's unacceptable. Now, but we always knew it was there. What Donald Trump what the election of Donald Trump did is he broke taboos. He, every single day he broke another taboo, which was part of our civil consensus, that you don't say this and you don't say this and you don't, you don't put all these things. And when all those taboos were broken, the sewer covers came off. And so all this ugliness that was there all of a sudden now feels the air and is out So there. it was never disappeared. It was no, always... It was never disappeared. always never, if after Auschwitz, we didn't come up with a vaccine, we never will. Okay? So, so it, was, no. it was always dormant. It was always dormant. And but it, it was the civil con consensus. Don't do it. Look, um, 
Yeah, I, Mel Gibson, you know, I'm going to live my life with Mel Gibson. I don't know how much of you remember, but Abe was the primary uh, okay. uh, uh, person challenging right. the passion Mel of Gibson, Christ. Mel Gibson, to me, is the beauty of America, which may now be changing a little bit. Mel Gibson was here. He was best producer, best director, best actor, people's choice. Wow, he walked on water. All of a sudden, he expressed himself as an anti-Semite. Didn't hurt that he was also a misogynist, you know, all these things. But all of a sudden, he went from here to there. Not by legislation, not by litigation, because the American people said, uh-uh, not by us. But are you afraid that today, because the Trump administration or the, the election seemingly normalized a kind legitimized, of old... Legitimized, normal, legitimized. Well, yeah. normalized. We're starting to see graffiti on subways. Right. We're seeing JCCs right. being called around the country, being threatened. Right. You're we're, seeing, you're you're seeing, seeing things on the internet about Ivanka Trump being a Jewess. Right. You're starting to see Jewish journalists being photoshopped wearing Auschwitz uniforms. You're starting... You have been reading about this. On social media, it's just, a, a, again, a sewer of anti-Semitism, very, again, old school. Yeah, the kinds of stuff, Right, you know, there was sort of intellectual left anti-Semitism, which is largely based on anti-Zionism, and that's the world that, you know, is in university settings, and your, your, stu- your kids and grandkids that are in colleges are living through that, right? That's okay, a different... We but have this, to be careful. The question here, I just want to know, are you yeah. saying that Mel Gibson's rant against a Jewish cop today might have been less... Uh, condemned by the American public? I don't know. I hope not. I hope not, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The other thing we have to be careful is, uh, you know, Trump is not, and Bibi Netanyahu today said he's not an anti-Semite. And I, we have to be careful, too, from our perspective. He's not an anti-Semite. And he didn't create it. It was there. He either let, normalized it, or the way I want to put it is, took off the sewer covers, and there it is. And therefore, our responsibility is not only to say it's not good, but to, to enlist him. And I think we have to enlist him. He, he missed the boat today. Well, what, the first question is, let me just yeah. say, the first yeah. question is from someone, what should Trump do to combat the rise of anti-Semitism? Okay. What should he do? Okay. Well, what should he, he have done today? He had an opportunity today to knock it out of the box. He didn't. He was asked about anti-Semitism, and he didn't say it's un-American, it's unacceptable, et cetera. He said, I, there's, he said I'm well, going to love everybody. He said, I'm going to create more love. Okay. So, he, for, like him or not, for better or for worse, he's got the bully pulpit. And just like he removed the covers, I think we have to encourage him, enlist him, educate him, whatever it is, to put that cover back on, on those sewers. And I think we will. So, that's... That's a responsibility. I think, you know, listen, it's four weeks. It only seems like four years. But <laughs> so we got a lot of time to get it. But yeah, I think he has the responsibility because he has the bully pulpit to, to begin to speak in terms, not I'm going to make everybody love, but hate is unacceptable. And I think we'll get there. All right, here's a question that you just don't love, but someone's asking and their handwriting is so excellent. I have to ask it. It's just beautiful, really. Uh, who would you say was the most influential Jew in American history? I know this is an area that we skipped over a little because you, you, you were troubled by the I, just the mere identifying. Say it again. And who, say it. who would you for say Jews or for was America? the most influential Jew? I think the question in fit in keeping with the topic for today's discussion is the making of, a, of modern America, influencing. Is there well, a Jewish know, American? Again, it's, you, you can play your game. If, um, if Chaim Solomon didn't fund the revolution, 
We may not be an independent country. We'd today. be Britain. Uh, we'd be Britain. So, I, so I, I don't know where you play that game. I come out of a legal background, so the Brandeis and the Cardozos, to me, are are so you know it's not they're not popular, and most people don't know. But in in establishing the basic fundamental principles of yeah, it's the it's the Cardozos, the Brandeises, the Frankfurters, you know. So, but that's to most people. Huh? Who cares? So it's it's I guess it depends from what discipline you come, what's important to you in in American life and Jewish life to find that you. If you well, love music, Leonard Bernstein and Irving Berlin, wow. Okay, so take your choice. And I guess if you're an Italian American, you could say Mario Cuomo or Francis mm-hmm. Ford Coppola, right? right? It depends right. on what your view is. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to answer this question very quickly. Was there a quota system for Jews in law schools in America until the mid-1950s? Yes. Yes. Uh, And not just law schools, everywhere. Um, There's a beautiful story about Emory three years ago. Uh, Somebody did some research and found that there was an anti-Semitic dean of the Emory School of Dentistry in the 50s, and he failed all the Jewish dentists. And um, you know they they left Emory, they went to other places, they became dentists, etc. And this new dean, uh, a couple of years ago, once he found out, publicly apologized, invited all the all the dentists who were failed, gave them honorary degrees, etc., to make up for. You're now so, an yeah, Emory Jewish dentist. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a fountain pen. Uh, how do you define? This is a little offbeat, but we should ask it uh, only because it gets me back to Bruno Mars. Uh, how do you define who is Jewish? Self-defined, one quarter, or some other way? Now, remember, Hitler... The answer is yes. Yeah, hit, because <laughs> hit, hit, for Hitler's purposes... Whatever makes you happy. Hitler's purposes, everyone's in there. But do you have a view in terms of your own years of sort of combating bigotry? I, um, I'm, a, I'm a big tenter. Um, anybody who says he's Jewish, I, I'm not... I'm not a halachic posit. That means I don't determine for all kinds of if, other if reasons. If a person self-identifies, then they are. Yeah, to me, that's fine. Anybody who really <laughs> wants to get up there and say, I'm Jewish, I want to okay. be Jewish, I want okay. you to be careful. We're on the Upper West Side on Central Park West, no. which, according to that, gets Madonna into this tribe. So what? I'm just saying. <laughs> she used to have an I'm apartment a, down the I'm block. I'm a huge tenter. I don't, this is fine. You want to be Jewish, be Jewish. Uh, all right, this is off the American side, but on, given what happened today in the White House, probably worth asking a question. Uh, this comes from the audience. Do you think that Arab nations will recognize Israel? Well, the answer is some have. Egypt has, Jordan has. Uh, at one time, even Lebanon has, and then took it back. So the answer is yes. Um, it's, it's a bigger question. Do, do I think that... Um, that this is this is a moment for regional peace because Israel and some of the Arab states have a common interest in anti-Iran. My answer is no, because Egypt recognized Israel, made peace with Israel, recognized Israel, couldn't care less about the Palestinians. That means they could have conditioned their peace on the Palestinians. They didn't. Neither did Jordan. So, and and they acted in their own best interest. So. I think it's it's artificial to link it. <laughs> if what unites them is their hatred or opposition or fear of Iran, that's enough of an interest to work together against Iran. 
Oh, I'm like a mashmita la harsina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what does this have to do with the Palestinians? It doesn't. It really doesn't. So I, I think this conversation today at the White House with this regional grant plan won't work. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it is a two-state solution. However you define that state, however you characterize it, however you develop it. And Bibi said, you know, I don't care, you know, he said, I don't want to play, um, I don't want to play semantics, but he played semantics. Uh, because he said, for peace to come, they have to recognize us as a Jewish state and they have to agree to be demilitarized. So these are conditions for a state. Then afterwards, he had a press conference and he said, we don't want to, um, we don't want to subjugate two and a half million Arabs, Palestinians. Well, well how do you do it if, 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 you're, if you're one state? So the answer is, it was, you know what? It was semantics. It doesn't make sense. It will have to be a two-state solution. Now, whether that two-state, the other state, is a confederated state with Jordan, there are all kinds of, there, there is old new thinking. So, I, you know, I am optimistic in terms of, of what came out today because I think both sides are ready to look at it out of the box. Because the box was, these, this is the phrase and this is where we go. Mm -hmm. I am an optimist generally, and I was optimistic today. Last question, and then we'll say goodnight. Uh, do you think it was an act of white supremacy and or anti-Semitism that there was no mention of Jews on Holocaust Remembrance Day? Um, so, so remember, President uh, uh, I, Trump I was offended by the question because he thought, for the love of God, does it appear to me, to anyone here, that I have any anti-Semitic tendencies. My children it's not about are Jewish. I think there's many. I look at look how inclusive I am. No. I included the gypsies no. and I included homosexuals and political prisoners. Um, and this is a sign of my openness and progressiveness, not okay, a sign so, of it. So here is my 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 paranoia. Uh, no, it's not anti-Semitism, but it was conscious and deliberate. Not he. He didn't. You know, it didn't go up the ladder up there. Somebody decided. Somebody decided it's time to put the Jews equal with everybody. Okay, somebody decided. Somebody decided to an extent that it was defended and defended and defended and defended to a point of ludicrousy. We were called pathetic, okay? But every time it, it could have been fixed by three words. You know what, it was inadvertent, Da, 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 da. It hasn't been fixed. And he didn't fix or, it today. And it's no question. He didn't fix it today in his prepared remarks. He came up to the edge and he didn't. So it's no, it's not anti, but it is somebody's agenda. Somebody's agenda is, and it plays, and it's not it's not universalizing the Holocaust yet. It's not there, but it's not Holocaust denial, but it has a political purpose. And time will tell. Where it comes. And the simple answer is to say that war of the Holocaust really didn't exist for any public usage other than the destruction of European Jewry. The word itself comes from that, and clearly, I, I, he's there could, is, could there, have said... There was a conscious effort not to do it or, and not to fix it, and not even to fix it today, because mm -hmm. he had a text where he could have just put in the phrase and he didn't. So that troubles me. It's somebody's agenda, which is still playing... Uh, up to this level, but it's not anti-Semitism. All right, with that note, we want to thank you all for coming here tonight. This is, uh, 
really, really great series here at the New York Historical Society. So please keep coming back, and hopefully they'll invite us back, and this will be an annual thing of Abe and Payne. Good night, everybody. Thank, Thank you, you all so much for coming. So I just want to remind everyone before you go, uh, Thane Rosenbaum will be signing books out in our Smith Gallery behind you. Uh, some of his titles are for sale in our museum store on our 77th Street side. Thank you so much.